Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Is there hope for slowing down climate change? In today's Every Day is Earth Day segment, we feature the lecture from Dr. Zeke Hausfather. He is a climate research lead for Stripe, an organization which helps to scale permanent carbon removal to meet the challenges of dealing with hard to decarbonize sectors of the economy and drawing down atmospheric CO2. And he was recently the guest speaker as part of the University of Minnesota's Department of Soil, Water and Climate, the distinguished speaker of the Kunast Lecture. He shared a cautious climate hope with the group that both acknowledges the progress we've made and how far we still have to go. Here is part of the edited presentation. I wanted to talk about climate hope because what I see out there right now, particularly among young people, is a lot of climate despair. Ten years ago, when I first got into this field and started doing climate science, we spent all of our time arguing with the skeptics, the people who said, oh, it's the sun causing climate change, oh, the records are biased, the data is adjusted. Nowadays, when I'm talking with climate change with people, the first question I always get is, oh, it's too late, we're all doomed, right? Or we're screwed, there's no way to solve the problem. And I think that's a really problematic framing because it's disempowering. It tells people that they can't do anything about it, that it's too late, and that it's wrong. And it glosses over a real amount of progress the world has made, particularly over the last decade. And so I think what we really need to embrace is a cautious climate hope. Not a blind optimism that says we're in the best of all worlds and things are going to be fine, but also not a pessimism that says, you know, we're disempowered, we can't actually do anything. Because if we want to solve thorny problems for society like climate change, we need to do a lot of things. And to do a lot of things, we need to realize that we have the agency and we have the power to do them. So I want to talk about hope. Another thing that I always remember is uh, Stephen Schneider, who's sort of one of the founders of modern climate science famously said that when it comes to climate change, the end of the world and good for us are the two least likely outcomes, even though often our debates revolve between the two. And so, you know, we can both acknowledge that we have made progress in avoiding the worst climate futures, but also that we still have a long way to go to get to the worlds that we want and that are going to be best for society. We have to start out whenever we're talking about climate change by emphasizing that the world is not on track today to meet our climate goals. And here we see that global warming has really accelerated the last few decades. Uh, the world has warmed by about uh, 1.2 degrees C since the pre-industrial period. Most of that warming, about a degree of it, has happened just since 1970. Now, if we continue warming at the rate that we have been over the last 50 years, we'd expect the world to pass 1.5 degrees in the early 2030s and 2 degrees in the uh, late 2050s. Uh, and that's not a world we want to be. We want to bend that curve. And when people look at this, they often get worried. They think, well, it's going to be really hard to change where we're going today. And we also tend to focus a lot on these specific thresholds, like 1.5 and 2 degrees, to the extent that people use slogans like 1.5 to stay alive. And there's this idea that if we pass these thresholds, it triggers some sort of process that leads to really bad outcomes for the planet. Uh, and as I'll dis discuss later in the talk, that's not necessarily the case. You know, certainly the more warming the world gets, the worse it is for all of us, the higher the impacts become. But the climate is ultimately a matter of degrees, not thresholds. And the more we can limit warming, the better every tenth of a degree matters. So I'm going to try to show a little video clip, and hopefully this will work. Our home is burning. 
Rapid climate change is destabilizing our world. It seems our emissions will not fall quickly enough to avoid runaway warming, and we may soon hit tipping points that will lead to the collapse of ecosystems and our civilization. While scientists, activists, and much of the younger generation urge action, it appears most politicians are not committed to doing anything meaningful, while the fossil fuel industry still works actively against change. It seems humanity can't overcome its greed and obsession with short-term profit and personal gain to save itself. And so for many, the future looks grim and hopeless. Young people feel particularly anxious and depressed. Instead of looking ahead to a lifetime of opportunity, they wonder if they will even have a future or if they should bring kids into this world. It's an age of doom and hopelessness, and giving up seems the only sensible thing to do. But that's not true. You are not doomed. Humanity is not doomed. So this is a, a video that I helped a team called Kurzgesagt put together that's sort of telling the story of climate hope, of why we are not necessarily doomed. And I'll sort of weave it in with my talk today because I feel like it does a, a really good job of illustrating some of these points. And so this idea of the world is heading in a terrible direction, nothing is happening to turn it around, should we even consider bringing children into the planet given how bad it's going to become, is remarkably widespread, particularly among younger generations today. But it also is missing out on a big part of the story, which is things have really changed over the last decade. And to explain why, I'll start with another quick video clip and then go into some specific details. A decade ago, for lack of action and perspective, many scientists assumed a four-plus degree world was our future, and a lot of public communication focused on exactly this future path. Luckily, it's much less likely that this version of the apocalypse will come to pass. If current climate policies stagnate, we're likely to end up with warming of around 3 degrees Celsius by 2100. Which is scary and tragic and far from acceptable. But this is actually good news. How? In the last decade, we've seen enough progress that most scientists now think that we have likely avoided apocalyptic climate change. Although substantial risk still remains, we can pretty confidently say that humanity isn't going anywhere. Civilization might have to change, but it will endure. Which begs the question, what has changed over the last 10 years, and is this really good news? So what has changed in the last 10 years? Why are we in a different world now than it looked like we were 10 years ago? So 10 years ago, if we look at global emissions of CO2, which is correct shows, they were increasing rapidly. Uh, global emissions had increased by a third over the course of a single decade. Uh, China, in particular, had doubled its emissions and was building a new coal plant every three days. Uh, and the idea that the 21st century could really be dominated by coal, that emissions could continue to grow and maybe triple by the end of the century, and we could end up on a scenario like this, didn't seem that implausible. And so let's fast forward a decade later. What's happened since 2011? Well, global emissions have started to flatten out. And now it seems like instead of being on a track for a you know, world of four to five degrees warming, under current policies, we're probably on track for a world of closer to three degrees warming, or a little below three degrees uh, is the best estimate. As I'll discuss a little bit later, there's certainly uncertainties in this, both in terms of what our emissions might be, but also the climate response to our emissions that we can't ignore. But the central outcome of our climate projections has really changed dramatically. Now, at the same time, a three-degree world is not a world we want to live in. It's a world that's potentially catastrophic for a lot of human and natural systems, even if it's not you know, necessarily the catastrophe for civilization as a whole. And we need to do a lot more to move emissions down 
to further bend that curve of emissions to make deep mitigation scenarios, scenarios where we keep warming well below two degrees, a reality. But the good news for us is it's a lot easier to bend that curve down than it would be if we were still back up here and heading toward a world of four to five degrees. So what has changed? Why are we in a world that is heading toward three degrees? Well, a big thing is our expectations of future emissions have changed. A lot of that has to do with fossil fuels. So previously, there was a sense that we're heading toward this high-end world of six times more coal being burnt by the end of the century, three times more emissions. That's the pathway a lot of people thought we were on. In the real world, we've seen some big changes. So global coal use peaked back in 2014 and has been slightly declining since. Um, clean energy is getting cheaper. And if you look at the latest projections from the International Energy Agency, it seems like we're heading toward more moderate levels of emissions over the next few decades. This figure is from a paper that Glenn Peters and I published in Nature two years ago. We essentially argued that we need to stop using this worst case, no policy scenario as the most likely outcome. That still can be useful for certain circumstances for evaluating big effects on the climate, hitting the climate with a big hammer, so to speak. Uh, it can be useful for looking at sort of extreme cases if we get unlucky with a lot of other climate responses, but it is no longer the outcome that society is likely to have. And at the same time, we've started seeing a huge amount of commitments by countries to do better. So we're no longer in a business as usual world, in part because countries have started making really strong commitments to reduce their own emissions. So this is from a, a piece in Nature we published earlier this year, where we looked at the full range of outcomes in the most recent IPCC report in terms of temperatures, and then looked like at the literature of what would be implied by current policies, so policies that are in place today in countries, 2030 nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, so essentially what countries have pledged to do by 2030 as part of their official Paris Agreement commitments. And then more recently, what happens if countries meet their net zero pledges? Because what's really changed for this graph in the last two years is countries representing over 80% of global emissions have now committed to get to net zero in the latter part of the 21st century. And this includes countries like China, India, Japan, South Korea, Brazil, US, EU, Australia, etc. Now, it's one thing to say you're going to do something by 2050 or 2070, it's a different thing to actually put yourself on a track to do that. And we should definitely take these sort of long-term net zero commitments with a proverbial boulder of salt. But at the same time, we finally have commitments by countries that are consistent with the size of the problem. If they're undertaken at scale, would put us on track to probably limit warming to around two degrees. And that's a much better place than we were in two years ago. This is a sort of big literature review we did on the subject where we looked at all of the studies of current policy outcomes, which are in red here, of 2030 nationally determined contribution outcomes, which are in orange, and of net zero commitments, which are in blue. And here we looked both at the uncertainty in emissions, which is sort of the bars, and the uncertainty in the climate response to those emissions, which is the whiskers. And the important distinction there is there's some uncertainty in what emissions trajectory the world will actually be on in each of these scenarios, but there's also some uncertainty around how the climate will respond to those emissions, how sensitive the climate is to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the sort of mix of feedbacks that affect the climate and temperature response to that, and potential changes in carbon cycle feedbacks that affect how the ocean and land can take up the CO2 that we emit. Now, what's changed? Why are we heading toward a world of much lower emissions? Why are global emissions flattening over the last decade? Why aren't we headed toward a 21st century dominated by coal? One of the single biggest ones is that there's an energy transition rapidly gaining steam that's dry, driven by the falling cost of renewables and batteries. So in the last decade, the cost of onshore wind has fallen by 60%. The cost of offshore wind has fallen by 61%. The cost of solar panels has fallen by 
staggering 89%, and the cost of batteries has fallen by 83%. And this dramatic decline in costs has triggered a huge increase in the adoption of these technologies. We're at the point today where solar is actually cheaper than fossil fuels for new generation in many parts of the world. Now, obviously, there are challenges if you want to provide 100% of the grid solar, and it's going to be harder to get to really deep emission reductions. But at the margin today, these have a huge impact on the decisions countries are making around what type of power plants to build and how to power their societies. As a result of these falling costs, which again are shown up on the top here for a slightly longer period of time since the year 2000, this is a figure from the, the recent IPCC group, uh, Working Group 3 report. We've also seen a huge exponential increase in the adoption of each of these technologies in photovoltaics and onshore wind, offshore wind, less in concentrating solar panel power, mostly because photovoltaics have become much cheaper. So there's not much reason to build CSP plants if you can build PV and a huge uptake in the adoption of electric vehicles. In fact, this past quarter, electric vehicles were 13% of global vehicle sales, which is a dramatic increase from 5% the previous year. And we expect that trend to not slow down anytime soon. Now, some countries are doing better than others in that regard. In the US, it's only 5% of new vehicle sales, so we're very much a laggard, whereas Europe, it's 20% or so, China is 18%. So we have a long way to catch up there, but we're finally reaching the point where a lot of these technologies are becoming cost-effective with fossil fuel alternatives, such that you can save money today if you buy an electric car, and to be honest, it might perform better than the gasoline car you previously had. And because of this energy transition, we've really seen a dramatic decline in the fortunes of coal. Now, coal is the dirtiest fossil fuel, and it's also the critical element to the highest future emission scenarios that we have. The real doomsday climate scenarios are ones where the 21st century is dominated by coal. And so what this graph shows is global coal use. This is from the International Energy Agency. The black line is the actual use of coal in each year. And then those colored lines are what the IEA thought would happen in each year in their flagship World Energy Outlook report under their stated policy scenario. So back in 2013, they thought, oh, you know, coal is going to keep growing, slow down a little bit as countries start caring more about climate change, but it's got a long way to grow. 2014, they thought the same thing. 2015, they're like, well, it's not growing as fast as we thought, but it's still going to grow. 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, you can see that almost every year, at least until the last few where it's too early to tell, uh, the growth of coal has been much slower than was predicted by these global energy models. There's an even more dramatic change in places like the United States. So this is the same graph, but for the US instead of the world. I've been looking at the projections from the Energy Information Agency, which is the Department of Energy group that's tasked with doing near-term projections of the energy system in the U.S. And again, here is every year since 2010, they publish an annual energy outlook where they project what's going to happen to U.S. coal. And every single year, it continues to fall. In fact, U.S. coal use has fallen by 60% in the last 13 years, uh, which is one of the more rapid energy transitions of any technology we've seen uh, in the world. And that has been a big driver for declines in U.S. emissions, which have fallen close to 20 percent uh, since their high in 2005. At the same time, we've also seen a decoupling of economic growth from emissions. Um, so previously, many people thought that it was impossible to grow economies without increasing CO2 emissions at the same time. They were so wedded to fossil fuels, there was a necessarily relationship between economic growth and emissions of CO2. And that led to a lot of people proposing radical alternatives like degrowing the global economy is the only way to effectively solve climate change. But over the last few decades, in particular, in the last 15 years, we've seen some pretty dramatic examples of decoupling in action of countries that have increased their economic growth, which is shown in red here, and decreased their emissions, which is shown in blue. So Denmark has decreased its emissions by 45% while growing its economy 17%. The UK has decreased its emissions 37% by growing its, while growing its economy 21%. And so we've identified 32 countries that have absolutely decoupled 
their CO2 emissions from their economic growth, which is good news. But you might look at this and say, okay, that sounds great for those countries, but aren't they just shipping manufacturing over to China? Aren't you just offshoring emissions? You know, is this really looking at the big picture? But what's interesting is we actually have data on not just the CO2 emissions that happen within countries, but also the emissions embodied in trade. So how much you import from countries like China that have a dirtier grid and how much you export to countries like China. And if you incorporate the emissions embodied in trade and calculate a separate metric called consumption emissions, so the emissions associated with all the goods consumed in each country, the picture doesn't fundamentally change. We still see the same 32 countries have also reduced their consumption emissions, shown here in teal, while increasing their GDP. And so it's not a issue of sending emissions overseas and just obfuscating the reductions at home. These are real reductions that we've seen in many countries uh, that are persistent over the past 15 years. This does not include 2020. If I did, these drops would be much larger. But obviously, 2020 was anomalous for many reasons. And we don't have necessarily all of the consumption emission data for 2020. So it only goes through 2019 for now. And we see you know, concrete examples in individual countries. So this is the United Kingdom, which has, again, increased economic growth by about 21%, while reducing both territorial and consumption emissions pretty dramatically. And the United Kingdom in particular has done much of this by moving away from coal. Coal use in the United Kingdom is now down to 1,800 levels. Um, and its overall CO2 emissions are down to about 1860 levels, um, which is pretty impressive for the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of this is being driven by a huge amount of resources and money that is going into the clean energy transition. Uh, this is a figure by the folks at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, who are some of the best at tracking these long-term trends. And it shows the amount of money being spent every year on mitigation technologies, on technologies that can reduce emissions. And, you know, back in the early 2000s, it was pretty small. It was under $100 billion a year. And it's risen pretty dramatically since then. In the most recent year, in 2021, the world spent about $755 billion on technologies that reduce emissions, much of those on renewable energy and electrified transport, with a smaller amount on things like electrified heat, nuclear, sustainable materials, and a tiny fraction on things like energy storage, uh, hydrogen, and carbon capture and storage. As I mentioned, we've also seen dramatic changes in vehicle, electric vehicle uptake. This is for 2021. So I, I previously mentioned in the last quarter, 13% of global vehicle sales were electric for the entire last year in 2021, it was 9%. So this is lagging a bit, uh, but 44% of new buses sold globally were electric buses. 42% of two and three wheel vehicles were electric globally, but only 1% of vans and trucks uh, were electric. And so we're seeing a, a dramatic increase in the uptake of some of these, but we still have a long way to go. And what we're really seeing here, and how I like to think about it, is a virtuous cycle of technology, behavior, and policy. So let's start with technology here. As we get cheaper clean energy technologies, we get cheaper electric vehicles, we get cheaper heat pumps, it becomes a lot easier for people to change their behavior around those technologies. I'm going to be a lot more willing to buy an electric car if it only costs $1,000 more than a conventional car up front than if it costs $10,000 more. I'm much more likely to get a heat pump from my home if it is around the same cost as a conventional thing. And so the bar for changing behavior falls and we get much widespread, much wider spread consumer adoption as technology drives clean energy costs down. At the same time, technology enables policy. So the reason why countries like China and India are willing to set a net zero target today, which they certainly weren't willing to set a decade ago, is because they see a pathway to reduce their emissions to zero later in the century while not coming at the expense of the development goals, while not coming at the expense of lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And again, that's because it seems like the cheapest option in the future for many sectors is going to be technologies that don't emit 
carbon dioxide that don't burn fossil fuels. At the same time, behavior also affects technology and policy. So as people are more willing to pay a premium for clean energy technologies because they're concerned about climate change, they will help drive the cost of those technologies down. The fact that people were willing to spend so much money for Teslas a decade ago is one of the reasons they've gotten substantially cheaper today because they get those economies of scale through early adopters. Similarly, behavior can influence policy. As more people get concerned around climate change, they increasingly call the representatives, they get out in the street, they vote, and they create policy changes. And then finally, policy has a critical role in influencing both technology and behavior. Many of the clean energy technologies, such as solar panels and electric vehicles, benefited substantially from early policy support, particularly solar panels in the 1970s were uh, pioneered out of U.S. national labs. And policy can have an effect on behavior through changing rules and regulations, through enabling alternatives, and through allowing people to act in different ways. So those are all related. And we've finally started seeing a lot of countries adopt more meaningful near-term climate policies. So one challenge we had for a while was we were seeing countries have these long-term 2050 net zero targets, which are laudable. But again, there wasn't really a pathway to get from where we are today to an, a net zero target in 2050. And what's changed in the past year in particular is we've increasingly seen countries set stronger near-term decadal targets around their emissions. So the Inflation Reduction Act was passed in the U.S. a few months ago, and that is hopefully going to get us a 40% reduction in U.S. emissions by the year 2050. We saw Australia pass a similarly strong climate policy. China has significantly upped its domestic targets for renewables. We saw Europe pass their own version of a Green New Deal that sets strong policy for the next decade. And so we're really starting to see strong movements toward reducing emissions. And this can really have ripple effects across the economy. This is a, a quote from a recent piece that was published in The Atlantic by Robinson Meyer, who essentially says that if it's adopted at scale and, and leads to the changes we'd expect, the Inflation Reduction Act could really change a lot of these societies and make climate-related industries a giant space in the U.S. It's still, we have to wait to see exactly how much of this comes through, but certainly we're talking about changes at a scale today that we have not seen in the past. So as I mentioned at the start, I've definitely seen a rise in doomerism, a rise in hopelessness. And at the point at which we give into hopelessness, when we say it's too late, we can't solve it, it's too big a problem, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so when I say we need a cautious climate hope, I'm really trying to sort of divide between two extremes, either a world of blind optimism, where we say that technology is going to solve all our problems, it's going to be easy, climate change is going to take care of itself, or a world of hopelessness where we say that there's no future, there's no way to solve these problems. Uh, and I think there's a very rich space between those two extremes to explore. Optimists are the ones that move us forward. They're the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the ones willing to put the reputation, money, and time on the line because they see an opportunity to solve the problem. And so I would hope that we all come out of this uh, with a little bit more optimism that this is a problem we can solve, even if it's a very hard and difficult one. Because again, we have made progress in the last decade. We still have a long way to go. You know, climate change, there's no silver bullets. So that's it. I wanted to leave a lot of time for questions. That was part of an edited presentation of Dr. Zeke Hausfather, a climate researcher who was the distinguished scientist to present at the University of Minnesota's Department of Soil, Water, and Climate's CUNAST lecture. The title of that presentation was The Case for cautious climate hope. You can find the entire presentation on YouTube by Googling the case for cautious climate hope. 
And Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.